Project Lifesaver is proud to bring you this episode of Deploying High with Chief Gene Saunders. Project Lifesaver is a community-based public safety nonprofit organization that provides law enforcement, fire, rescue, and caregivers with a program designed to protect and, when necessary, quickly locate individuals with cognitive disorders who are prone to the life-threatening behavior of wandering. Project Lifesaver has grown to be recognized internationally and now is one of the most widely used and proven most effective program in the nation that is specifically designed to protect the at-risk populations in our communities. Project Lifesaver strategically combines state-of-the-art locating technologies. The search and recovery times for Project Lifesaver agencies average 30 minutes, which is 95% less time than standard operations without Project Lifesaver. To learn more about bringing Project Lifesaver to your community or to donate to the mission, please visit projectlifesaver.org. Project Lifesaver, bringing loved ones home. Many of us spend our whole life in search of purpose, desperately seeking meaningful ways to make a difference in the world with the short amount of time we are given. Deploying High has been designed to help you analyze what gives you purpose through inspirational, thought-provoking stories and conversation. I'm Nora Firestone, author of the book Deploying High about the mission and true purpose of our host. So it is a true pleasure and honor to introduce to you Chief Gene Saunders. Hi, I am Chief Gene Saunders, founder and CEO of Project Lifesaver International. Deploying High is brought to you today by Project Lifesaver International. If you haven't already, I ask you to join our mission of saving lives by subscribing at DeployingHigh.com. Today, I'm privileged to be talking to a friend and a colleague and a fellow who is a major with the police department that uh, I retired from in 2001, the Chesapeake, Virginia Police Department. It's my pleasure to introduce and to welcome to Deploying High, Major Mark Heckler. How you doing, Mark? I'm well, sir. It's great to be here, and thank you very much for having me. Well, we're delighted to have you, absolutely. You know, I kind of like to start off, Mark, just so people can get a feel for who is Mark Heckler. Uh, we know he's a major on the police department, but other than that, you know, what did when you first started out as Mark Heckler, what did you do before you ever became a police officer? Well, that's a that's an interesting story. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I had always dreamed of becoming a police officer as a young man, but my uh, my initial college education and interest led me towards the business world. So I actually, uh, I did two years of school, left school, wanted to get to work, probably should have stayed and finished, but uh, that's a story for another day. But I found myself working in advertising, marketing, and public relations. I started uh, working for a communications company that had a contract to sell advertising inside retail settings to include grocery stores, uh, Toys R Us stores, drug stores. And uh, I called on packaged goods manufacturers that had a message to deliver to consumers while they were in the store where they're making most of their brand purchase decisions. So I spent a lot of time traveling the country, uh, meeting with folks and, 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 and basically selling. Uh, that, that's, that's what I was doing. And uh, I had a friend of mine who was at the time a corporal with the Virginia Beach Sheriff's Office. 
And I was fascinated with the stories that he told about uh, working in the correctional center and the courts and uh, started volunteering with Virginia Beach Sheriff's Office in 1994. And uh, I, I quickly became fascinated with that work, spent a lot of my off time uh, working there as a volunteer, and then decided I wanted to see what the street looked like. And so I, I took a significant cut in pay to change uh, my line of work to something that I actually looked forward to doing every day which is priceless to me. And uh, from there, uh, the two agencies in our area, now you remember those were the days when you go to an application process and you might be one of 400 people doing a PT test or taking a written test. Uh, the case is different today, but um, two agencies at that time were hiring the Hampton Police Division and the Norfolk Police Department in our area. And uh, I engaged in both of those processes and Hampton called first. So that's where I wound up uh, in 1996. And I worked there uh, until 1999 when I came to Chesapeake. And uh, I've been here since April of 99 and just celebrated 23 years uh, with uh, Chesapeake PD and hit 25 years in the retirement system last July, although I have no plans to go anywhere anytime soon. It's nice to know you can, though, isn't it? It sure is. <laughs> <laughs> so... What made you decide to come over to Chesapeake? I was uh, always living on the South Side, and my wife at the time had become a school teacher at Hickory High School. And I knew that there was a lot more I wanted to do with my career. I had enjoyed uh, working in patrol in Hampton, and uh, community policing was really just getting off the ground in the mid 1990s. But uh, I was very much interested in SWAT and vice and narcotics as assignments. And I knew that to really fully participate in those, it would be a lot easier if I lived and worked in the same city. So I applied to Chesapeake. And even though I was already a certified law enforcement officer, at that time, Chesapeake still required new hires to attend the police academy. So I knew what I was signing up for. And uh, that's where I met you, was in the Chesapeake Police <laughs> Academy. The 40th session. You poor guy. <laughs> I still remember those inspections. <laughs> but I'm, I'm better for it and learned a lot, made a lot of friends, uh, used credit cards to make the end, ends meet for the cut and pay I took as a, going back to recruit pay. But uh, it's been a, an incredible experience here in Chesapeake. I've had a rewarding career and uh, there's not much I would change. I can appreciate you saying that, you know, uh, I, as you know, I spent 33 years with the department and finally I reached a point in life where I had done just about everything in the police department. And of course, Project Lifesaver came along. It piqued my interest. It was a new challenge, uh, which I decided to kind of move off and go ahead and, and attack that and see, you know, just how it came out. Yeah, I remember the academy. I remember a lot of the because I spent about seven years at the academy uh, as a director of training, it was some very enjoyable days, you know. I've seen all kinds of people come into that academy. Uh, not all of them graduated, as you know, uh, because some people are more suited to be police officers. It's my belief that there are people that are suited for different things in life, and everybody is not suited or fitted to be a police officer. And I think the academy is where you need to make that determination. Uh, as to who's going to go into the career field, 
and who isn't. But, uh, you know, it's interesting, and I'd like to get your perspective. Now, you came into police work in the 90s. It is now 2022. When I was coming along, I saw changes in police work. I saw a lot of changes. What have you noticed since you started that has really changed in police work? Well, sir, you know, just starting with training, since that's uh, where we left off. And by the way, your legacy lives large at the academy. Uh, We still, I I can't think of the name of the piece of music, but we still play it when the recruits graduate, summoning the heroes. Summon the heroes. Yeah, yeah. And uh, the only easy day was yesterday sign is still there. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, We've made some improvements to the building that you'd be pleased with, but, uh, but uh, we're, we're still on track. The Academy has expanded since then because there's so many things. And as you know, having our own Academy versus uh, having our officers attend the regional Academy allows us to teach it the Chesapeake way. Uh, And so the, the, this last class that graduated last Thursday night, uh, we graduated 14, which sounds kind of small when we've done when we've graduated classes of 25 and 30 in the past. Um, that, that was 28 weeks of training for them. So there's so much today that you need to know and, uh, to be a police officer. There's just so many facets of the training that's you know different uh, from some of the other first responder professions. You know we like to say that. We have to spend more time preparing our police officers because unlike a a firefighter who uh, steps off the engine in the presence of a company officer or a sheriff's deputy working in corrections whose supervisor is probably on the same floor or just a floor away, police officers are in the field and they're making a number of very significant decisions and some of those decisions in a nanosecond. And so we have to spend a lot of time preparing them. So with all of the things that they have to know to go out and be successful, all the different pieces of equipment electronic-wise that they have to be able to operate, we have to spend a little bit more time in the training environment. And then once they enter field training, uh, they'll go, the average is 90 days and sometimes up to 120 to make sure that they have acclimated uh, to the street and, and, and uh, the way we take reports, how we interact with citizens, and using the technology we need to use to be successful and capture and document each incident so that they can be prepared for court uh, and to testify at a later time. Yeah, well, I've noticed right away when you say now your training academy is 28, when I was there, it was 26. So that's uh, that's about 80 more hours of training that you're dealing with. Uh, so that that's a significant change, you know, right there. So you're, during your police career, you had an interest in vice and narcotics and SWAT. Tell me about your vice and narcotics experience, because as you know, I was there four times. Yes, sir. <laughs> so uh, after working in patrol and in community policing, I had uh, been able to kind of develop my own informants working up in the second precinct uh, area, South Norfolk, Indian River, uh, part of the city, for those who don't know Chesapeake. And uh, I, I was really anxious to uh, continue narcotics investigations, but to do so uh, without also having to chase the radio in between handling calls for service. And uh, once I got up there, uh, which would have been back in um, August of uh, 2002, 
I quickly, uh, we were writing search warrants our first week, myself and another officer, Greg Jensen, who you might remember, who mm -hmm. has since left and gone to DEA and is uh, signed up in Buffalo now. Um, but we, we, were, we got busy right away uh, doing narcotics investigations, learning um, how to write search warrants, learning how to really do investigations very thoroughly. And, uh, and at the same time, as much as I enjoyed doing the investigations, I also en enjoyed uh, making the arrest and, and, and executing the search warrants and doing the vehicle takedowns. That was, uh, that was a lot of fun for me. And uh, I had, just before going to Vice Narcotics, I had attended uh, the Chesapeake Police Department's uh, SWAT school and was ranked on the list and waiting for my turn to come on the team, which materialized in October of the same year. So if you can imagine being the new guy in narcotics and the new guy on the SWAT team, I was just the new guy everywhere <laughs> I turned and uh, just uh, soaking up uh, everything as much as I could, like a sponge, making mistakes, learning from those. And, uh, and uh, finally uh, hit my stride after a few months in each assignment and, uh, and just uh, really enjoyed that. And, and I was kidding with an officer the other day that I enjoyed vice narcotics investigative work so much that had I not aspired to make sergeant, I might still be there today. <laughs> well, you know, that's a, uh, a passion that you and I can share for certain. You Absolutely. know, uh, as I mentioned, I was there four times as a investigator, sergeant, lieutenant, and a captain. So uh, that was one of my passions. Of course, my other one was one that I think we share a passion for, and you've mentioned it, and that's SWAT. Uh, so tell me about your SWAT experience. Well, I came on uh, the team in uh, October of 2002 and served for 14 years. Uh, and I, coming off um, in uh, January of 2017, the last six of those 14 years, I was uh, the SWAT commander. Um, when I first came on, uh, we were short of breachers. And um, so I learned how to be an operator at a, over a compressed period of time, and then I had to start breaching, which I've obviously helped in my primary assignment in vice and narcotics. And, uh, you know, at the time, the tactics were a little bit different. We may talk about that uh, today. Um, we focused quite a bit on uh, dynamic entries and uh, dynamic building clearing and practiced that quite a bit because we wanted to be proficient at it when it came to hostage rescue. And uh, that was a lot. It was a lot to learn, a lot to take in. And then adding breaching to that, you learn how to get the door open and get out of the way <laughs> real yeah. quick and then come in behind the team and, and help where you're needed most. And, uh, and, 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 and it was a lot of fun. I enjoyed very much the camaraderie, the opportunity to step up and be an informal leader and just learning from those around me that had a lot more experience than I did. Obviously, uh, uh, Charlie Winslow was the uh, lieutenant and commanding officer at the time. And uh, we had uh, Jim Jarrett and, and uh, several other guys that had been on for a long time that I was able to learn from. And all of them you trained. <laughs> well, you had some good guys there. They, they were really great operators. Uh, but you're talking about how the, the tactics, you know, may have changed some. And I have not been able to follow it as closely as I'd like. Uh, but, yeah, I think just because of the environment we're in, some of the Absolutely. tactics had to change. So if you want to comment on that, feel free. So uh, more recently, 
in Virginia, the legislature um, changed some of the, uh, the laws concerning how we serve search warrants. Um, and although we were moving away from no-knock warrants as a team and doing more surround and call out uh, type, type warrant services where we would uh, go prepared for a barricade, but uh, you know, have enough information to be able to call the suspect out and get them to surrender. Um, uh, we started doing more of those and we, we added that uh, as a tactic because uh, we, we just felt that in certain circumstances, there was just no reason to go dynamic uh, you know, with a no-knock. Now, uh, what's happened from a legislative perspective, which really changes uh, uh, tactics for the SWAT team is we, we can't go early in the morning and we can't go late at night now. Uh, so we're restricted on serving search warrants between the hours of eight in the morning and five in the evening. So you're pretty much serving warrants in broad daylight. And it, it raises a number of other safety concerns for bystanders, uh, kids at bus stops, traffic, other, other people walking around going about their daily lives that you don't have to deal with if you go, you know, at five o'clock in the morning. The concern, obviously, was making sure that people had the, the opportunity to uh, come alive cognitively to open the door. Uh, for the police department to be there to serve the warrant. So we have had to modify those tactics. It is a little bit different nowadays um, for the way we do that, but um, we play the hand we're dealt and we play to win. So uh, improvise, adapt and overcome is what our team has done. And uh, we still practice dynamic entry so that we're prepared for those hostage rescues. But we become real good at preparing at and executing for barricaded uh, person operations in the event that folks don't come out as we hope they will when we ask them to. Um, a couple of pieces of equipment that um, have come down the pike in recent years. We were, we were very fortunate. Um, the city allowed us to apply for a federal homeland security grants. So we finally got a Bearcat, uh, which was very helpful uh, for staging our reaction teams. Uh, instead of having to stage behind the, the closest structure with shields, uh, now we have the, the ability to move personnel behind uh, protection. And uh, since we've had the vehicle, is, which is just a little more than a year and a half, we already had uh, someone uh, shoot at the uh, driver's side window of that vehicle with a high-powered rifle, shot at mm. it twice, and, and the, uh, the Bearcat uh, performed uh, as designed, and we just uh, had to have the window replaced. So we could see through it. So uh, you got rid of the old Brinks truck? <laughs> we sure did. <laughs> <laughs> and all of its carbon monoxide. <laughs> hey, listen, you know, we you made a statement a minute ago, you have to deal with the hand that you're dealt. Well, that's what we had to do then. And, of course, the department didn't have the funds to buy anything, so I actually begged Brinks, and they donated that. They donated two of them, actually. But, uh, no, go on with what you're saying. I just think that's very interesting. So, you know, we, uh, we, we meet or exceed all of the standards for, uh, that NTOA sets for collateral duty teams. Uh, the team has developed, you know, we have 26 operator positions. The current commander is, is, a, is a fantastic lieutenant by the name of Jim Garrett. And, uh, you know, we, he's one of the 26 operators. We have a breaching unit, as we always have. We have a precision long rifle, as we've always had. And we've since added uh, a maritime unit and um, 
uh, we've, we've been engaged in practicing uh, shipboarding because, as you know, we have the Elizabeth River that basically cuts the city in half. and We have a lot of commercial shipping. And once it's moored, it's our responsibility if something happens on one of those vessels. Um, we've since been able to, we, we switched over our primary weapon system from the MP5 over to a, an AR-15 platform. We've actually been through a few iterations of that. Uh, we've been able to, to, to really do great research and get our, get our guys uh, some great gear. And now every uh, SWAT officer is assigned um, uh, night vision capability. Um, we've gone uh, to some thermal systems um, where uh, we can actually look under doors and look through walls. Uh, we've, we've added throwbots uh, as, a, as, a, as a type of robot. Uh, that's been since I came off the team, and uh, and regular avatar robots. So from making deliveries into the stronghold, and we've uh, something they asked me for, and I told them they were crazy at the time that I would never go go before the chief and ask. But they wanted drones, so you can imagine a bunch of SWAT guys messing with drones. I just knew <laughs> yep. that it was going to end up end up in a puddle somewhere, and me explaining what happened. But they've since added drones for for use in searching inside the building. So any place we can send a device before we would even send a canine and certainly before we would send a human, uh, if we can use technology to our advantage to tell us where the bad guy is or to tell us if the bad guy has, is incapacitated by his own hand, uh, that those are helpful tools for us. And uh, we're really pleased with how things are going with the team. I miss it. I don't miss the calls in the middle of the night, but I do miss the I do miss the camaraderie and the work. I'm often asked uh, when it comes to police work, what do I really miss? And, and you hit it right on the head. Yeah. I miss the SWAT. Uh, I miss the camaraderie, the teamwork. There's no other unit within the police department, even Vice Narcotics, that really works as closely together as the SWAT team because the SWAT team trains together, works together, and they look to each other to, you know, cover each other's backside. Uh, but it is fascinating to hear all the changes and the progress that it's made, you know, and it's, uh, it's very satisfying as well. Uh, but moving to another subject, because we're good, kind of getting short on time, PTSD. Yes, sir. It is a big situation in first responders now. Uh, I firmly believe that any... Any officer or anybody that's been in first responding for any length of time has developed some form of PTSD, whether they recognize it or not. So I'd kind of like to get your feelings on that as well and what you all may be doing to address it. Right from the uh, from basic training, uh, we make our officers aware the, the things that they're going to experience in police work are going to be like none other that, that they've likely experienced, unless they have been uh, in the military uh, and, uh, and deployed to a forward area. Um, and some of those things would ring, ring consistent. Um, but we, we have tried to take the unfortunate and pervasive stigma away from asking for help. That's the number one thing, mm-hmm. making sure that um, while we sometimes have to put on a tough exterior to be able to do the job and endure the things that we see, being quiet about the things that bother you and not reaching out for help or turning to 
um, the negative coping mechanisms really have to be avoided. And so we, we just have those candid conversations right from the very beginning, Chief. Um, and we, we, of course, we have resources in place. We have uh, our employee assistance program with the city has evolved uh, nicely over the years. And then we have a very robust peer support team. All conversations with peer support members, regardless of rank, are confidential. The only time that confidence would be breached is if we thought it was imminent that the officer uh, was in such a crisis that they might try to hurt themselves. Um, and uh, we are also, um, I'm pleased to say that, and I learned of this uh, just hours before our meeting today, that we are going uh, with a, a new phone application. And, um, and I wanna get it right, so if you'll indulge me, it's called the Lighthouse Health and Wellness app for first responders. So this is an app that an officer can install right on their phone um, and they can click on the app. Now they're not gonna speak to anybody local and all of the, the dialogue is completely confidential. But if they're experiencing something that they're having a really hard time with, they can talk about it. And the, the folks that are on the other end, same as our peer su support group, uh, are there to help them process uh, what they've experienced. A lot of times we, um, we will have a, a, a critical incident stress debrief after um, a critical incident. And it could be uh, something that a uh, law enforcement action or it could be something that law enforcement simply responded to, uh, the death of a child, uh, a serious auto accident, whatever the case might be. And uh, we do those critical incident stress debriefings when we see that we need them. And we require people to attend. We don't require them to talk, but they're certainly encouraged to do so. And then we do routine follow-up. But adding this app to the things that we're already doing and encouraging along the way, you know, focusing on the tenets of 21st century policing and uh, health and wellness and fitness. These are all things that uh, put together, give us uh, an officer that's gonna be more resilient um, to the kinds of stresses and um, difficult things that they're gonna see uh, during their career. And it does build up over time. There is a cumulative uh, stress um, that, that can accumulate over time. And what we don't want to see are the negative behaviors and negative coping mechanisms. We just need to destigmatize it and offer these tools to help people uh, navigate the career and to be as healthy, happy, happy, and productive and still look forward to coming to work as possible. Tell you, Mark, I think that's great. Absolutely great. I like the idea of the app. I like what the, uh, the, the PD there is doing. Uh, I'm not even going to comment on the fact that well, you know, we didn't have any of that coming up, and I am really pleased to see where they are today in every aspect that you've talked about. You know, Project Lifesaver is also moving into that PTSD coverage, and we're working with the University of Central Florida. In fact, at our conference this uh, coming August, which you can certainly attend if you'd like. In fact, you're invited. Uh, it's in Lake Buena Vista, uh, Florida, right across from Disney Springs. Uh, they are going to be presenting their program to assist officers uh, with uh, potential and prob problematic PTSD, which I think That's is great, great that all this is, is being addressed now. Uh, it's too bad it wasn't addressed years and years ago, 
Uh, but now it's coming to the forefront, and I'm certainly glad to see it. Mark, we're out of time. I am really, really happy to have spoken with you. I think it's been enlightening for me. Uh, you know, I thought I was keeping up with police work pretty good, but it's, you know, evident I'm not. But I think you have brought me into a, a whole new realm now, and I appreciate that. Uh, I look forward to talking to you again, and I thank you very much for being here today and, uh, and you know, uh, gracing us with all this information, which I think is going to be beneficial. I certainly do. So, Well, Chief, I consider you a teammate and a friend, and uh, I'm pleased to have had the opportunity to speak to you and uh, your viewers today, and uh, we welcome the opportunity to come back and talk to you about any other subject of interest. Be careful what you wish for, Mark. You know, you've heard that before. But I hope to see you again very soon, and you have a really great day. And say hello to the chief, and congratulations on his retirement. And maybe next time I talk to you, you may be sitting in that chair. Who knows? You know? So Thank you, sir. I appreciate your confidence in me. You're certainly welcome, and it is, is definitely deserved. That's all the time we have for this episode of Deploying High. Please join our mission of saving lives and never miss an episode by subscribing to DeployingHigh.com. I'm Chief Gene Saunders, the founder and CEO of Project Lifesaver International. We're bringing it all into view. Thanks for listening to this episode of Deploying High with Chief Gene Saunders, brought to you by Project Lifesaver International. Deploying High would like to thank all of our supporters across the country and around the world. All proceeds from Deploying High go to support Project Lifesaver International online at projectlifesaver.org. If you'd like to help support the mission, please subscribe to our channel, make a donation, and don't forget to tell a friend about us.